Section 3 of Rameau's Nephew This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rameau's Nephew by Denis Diderot Translated by Ian C. Johnston Section 3 Me You've gone to a lot of trouble to show me that you've got great skill, but I'm a man who should have taken your word for it. Him. Great skill? Oh, no. I know a few tricks of the trade, and that's more than one needs. After all, in this country does anyone have to understand what he teaches? Me. No more than people have to understand what they learn. Him. That's well said, my God. Very apt. There, Mr. Philosopher, cross your heart and tell the truth. There was a time when you weren't as well off as you are today. Me. I'm not all that well off even now. Him. But you'll no longer be going to the Luxembourg in summer. You remember... Me. Drop that subject. Yes, I do remember. Him. In a grey plush frock coat. Me. Yes, yes. Him. All worn out on one side, with frayed cuffs and black wool stockings stitched up the back with white thread. Me. Yes, indeed. Everything just as you'd like. Him. What did you do then in the alley of sighs? Me. I was a sorry enough sight. Him. When you left there, you used to scurry along the pavement. Me. That's right. Him. You gave lessons in mathematics. Me. Without understanding a word of it, isn't that where you want to go? Him. Exactly. Me. I learned by teaching others, and I produced some good students. Him. That may well be, but with music things aren't the same as in algebra or in geometry. Now these days you are a grand gentleman. Me. Not so grand. Him. But you're well-to-do. Me. Not really. Him. You provide tutors for your daughter. Me. Not any more. It's her mother who's concerned about her education, and one has to have peace at home. Him. Peace at home? My God! One only has that when one is the servant or the master, and it's essential to be the master. I had a wife, God rest her soul, but when she got the idea now and then to answer back, my hackles rose. I let go with my thunder and said, like God, let there be light. And there was light. So over a four-year period, we didn't raise our voices in a row ten times. How old is your child? Me. That's got nothing to do with it. Him. How old is your child? Me. What the devil? Leave my child and her age out of it, and let's get back to the teacher she'll have. Him. My goodness, 
I know nothing as stubborn as a philosopher. If one supplicates you very humbly, might one not be able to learn from Monsieur the Philosopher the approximate age of Mademoiselle, his daughter? Me. Let's assume she's eight years old. Him. Eight? She should have had her fingers on the keys four years ago. Me. But perhaps I don't worry very much about putting into the plan for her education a study which is so time-consuming, and which is so little use. Him. And what are you intending to teach her? Please tell me. Me. To reason correctly, if I can. That's something uncommon among men, and even rarer still among women. Him. Let her reason badly as much as she likes, provided she's pretty, amusing, and flirtatious. Me. Since in her case nature has been so ungrateful as to give her a delicate constitution with a sensible soul, and to expose her to the same pains of life as if she had a strong constitution and a heart made of bronze, I'll teach her, if I can, to bear those pains bravely. Him. Mo. Leave her to cry, suffer, and simper with delicate nerves, like the others, provided she is pretty, amusing, and flirtatious. What? No dancing? Me. No more than what's necessary for her to curtsy, and have a decent carriage, to present herself well, and to know how to move. Him. No singing? Me. No more than is necessary for her to enunciate well. Him. No music? Me. If there was a good teacher of harmony, I would willingly entrust her to him for two hours a day for one or two years. No more. Him. And in the place of these essential things you are cutting out? Me. I put grammar, literature, history, geography a little drawing, and a great deal of moral instruction. Him. It would be so easy for me to prove to you the uselessness of all those subjects in a world like ours. Did I say uselessness? Perhaps I should have said danger. But for the moment I'll confine myself to one question. Won't one or two teachers be necessary? Me. Undoubtedly. Him. Ah, well, there we are again. And these teachers, you hope they'll know something about the grammar, literature, history, geography, and morality which they're teaching her in her lessons? That's just a song and dance, my dear sir, a song and dance. If they grasped these matters well enough to teach them, they wouldn't be teaching them. Me. Why not? Him. Because they would have spent their lives studying them. It's necessary to be profound in art or in science in order to grasp the basics well. Educational works can only be properly produced by those who have grown white in harness. It's the middle and end which illuminate the shadows at the beginning. Ask your friend Mr. D'Alembert, the leading light in mathematical sciences, if he would be too good to teach the basics. Only after twenty or thirty years of practice did my uncle glimpse the first faint light of musical theory. Me. Oh, you idiot. You total idiot. 
How is it that in your wretched head there are such reasonable ideas, all mixed up higgledy-piggledy with so many absurdities? Him. Who the devil knows? Chance throws them out to you, and they stay with you. Still, when we don't know everything, we don't know anything well. We don't know where something is going, or where something else comes from, where this or that should fit, which should go first, or whether it would be better to go second. Can anyone teach well without a method? And where is that method born? You see, my philosopher, I have this notion that physics will always be a poor science, a drop of water picked up by a needle from the vast ocean, a grain detached from the mountain range of the Alps. And the reasons for phenomena? In truth, it would be just as good to be ignorant about them as to understand them so little and so badly. That was exactly where I was when I made myself a teacher of accompaniment and composition. What are you dreaming about? Me. I'm dreaming that everything you've just said is more specious than substantial. But let's leave that. Did you say you taught accompaniment and composition? Him. Yes. Me. And you didn't understand them at all? Him. No, my goodness, not at all. And that's the reason there were worse teachers than me, those who believed they understood something. At least I didn't ruin the judgment or the hands of the children. When they left me for a good teacher, they'd learned nothing, and so at least they didn't have to unlearn anything. And that was always so much money and time saved. Me. How did you manage that? Him. How they all do. I arrived. I threw myself into a chair. What dreadful weather! How tiring the pavement is! I chattered about some news. Miss Lemiere was to have taken on the role of a vestal virgin in the new opera, but she is pregnant for the second time. They don't know who will take her place. Miss Arnould has just left her count. People say she is negotiating with Bertie. The little count, however, has just found out about Mr. de Montamy's porcelain. At the last concert for the lovers of music, there was an Italian woman who sang like an angel. That Preville is an exceptional fellow. You must see him in the Mercure Galant. The part about the riddle is priceless. And poor Dumas Neil no longer knows what he's saying or doing. Come, mademoiselle, take your book. While the young lady, who's in no hurry, looks for her book, which she has mislaid, and while the maid is being summoned and chastised, I keep going. That Clairon is truly incomprehensible. People are talking about a really crazy marriage. One with Miss What's-Her-Name, a little creature he's been supporting, with whom he's had two or three children, and who's been kept by so many others. Come now, Rameau. That's not possible. You're rambling on. No, I'm not rambling. They even say that the marriage has taken place. There's a rumor going around that Voltaire is dead. So much the better. Why is that good? Well, that means he's going to give us some fine foolishness. He has a habit of dying two weeks before he does so. What else shall I tell you? I told her a few naughty remarks which I'd brought back from some homes where I'd been, for we are all great gossips. I played a fool, and they listened to me. They laughed. They cried out, He's always charming. However, the young lady's book was finally recovered from under an armchair where it had been dragged, chewed, and ripped by a young pug dog or by a kitten. She sat at the keyboard. At first she made some noise there, all by herself. Then I came up, after having given her mother a sign of approval. 
the mother said. But that isn't so bad. One needs only to want to do it, but one doesn't want to. One prefers to waste one's time with chit-chat, clothes, running around, and I don't know what. As soon as you're gone, the book is closed, and it's not opened again until you return. And then you never reprimand her. However, since I had to do something, I took her hands and placed them in a different position. I got upset. I cried out, G, 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 mademoiselle, it's a G. The mother, Young lady, don't you have an ear? I'm not even at the keyboard, and I'm not looking at your book, but I feel that that must be a G. You're giving this gentleman a great deal of trouble. I don't understand his patience. You don't retain anything he tells you. You're not progressing at all. Then I eased the blows a little, by shaking my head and saying, Excuse me, madam, excuse me. Yes, that could go better, if the young lady wanted to, if she studied a little. But it's not going badly. The mother. In your place, I'd keep her on the same piece for a year. That's all right. She won't leave it until she has surmounted all the difficulties. And that won't take as long as madam thinks. The mother. Mr. Rebeau, you're flattering her. You're too kind. That's the only thing she'll remember from her lesson, and she'll know the right time to repeat it in front of me. The hour went by. My pupil gave me the small fee, with the graceful movement of her arm and the curtsy she had learned from her dancing master. I put it in my pocket, while the mother said, Very good, mademoiselle. If Javillier were here, he'd applaud you. I kept chatting for a moment longer, out of courtesy, then disappeared. There you have it. That's what people used to call a lesson and accompaniment in those days. Me. And nowadays, it's something different. Him. My God, well, I should think so. I arrive. I'm serious. I'm in a rush to take off my coat. I open the keyboard. I test the keys. I'm always in a hurry. If anyone makes me wait for a moment, I cry out as if they've stolen an Aku from me. In an hour from now, I have to be over there. In two hours at Madame's house, the Duchess of something or other, who I'm expected to dine at the home of a beautiful Marquise, and once I leave there, to go to a concert in the house of Baron de Bach in Rue Nouvelle des Petits Champs. Me. Of course, you're not expected anywhere. Him. That's the truth. Me. So why do you use all these vile little schemes? Him. Oh, vile? Why vile, if you please? They're what's customary in my profession. I don't demean myself in acting just like everyone else. I'm not the one who invented them, and I'd be really odd and tactless if I didn't conform. Of course I know very well that if you're going to apply certain universal principles from I don't know what morality, which all of them mouth but none of them practice it, it will end up that what's white will really be black, and what's black will really be white. But, Mr. Philosopher, there's a universal conscience, just as there's a universal grammar, and then there are exceptions in every language. You call them, I think, you scholarly types, some... Give me some help here. Some... Me. Idioms. Him. That's it? Well, every profession has its exceptions to the general conscience. I'm happy to call these trade idioms. Me. I understand. Fontenelle speaks well and writes well, although his style is crawling with French idioms. Him. And the sovereign, the minister, the financier, the magistrate, the soldier, the man of letters, the lawyer, the prosecutor, the merchant, the banker, the artisan, 
the singing master, the dancing master. These are all really honest people, although their conduct goes against the general conscience in several points and is full of moral idioms. The older the business institution, the more idioms there are. The worse times get, the more idioms multiply. Whatever the man is worth, that's what the job is worth, and conversely, in the end, whatever the job is worth, that's what the man is worth. So we value the job as much as we can. Me. What I can see clearly from all this nonsense is that there are few professions honestly practiced, or few honest people in their professions. Him. Right. There aren't any. But on the other hand, few of them are rascals outside their own shops, and everything would go well enough if there weren't a certain number of people whom we call diligent and accurate, who carry out their duties rigorously and strictly, or what amounts to the same thing, who are always in their shops busy with their trade from morning to evening, doing nothing else. In addition, they're the only ones who get rich and respected. Me. Because of idioms. Him. That's it. I see you've understood what I've been saying. All right. One idiom in almost every profession. For there are idioms common to all countries and all times, just as there are common ways of being foolish. A common idiom is to acquire for oneself the largest number of customers as possible. A common stupidity is to believe that the person who has the most customers is the most expert. There you have two exceptions to the general conscience which we have to bow down to. It's a sort of credit system. In itself it's nothing, but it is worth something in public opinion. It's been said that a good reputation is more valuable than a golden belt. However, the man with a good reputation doesn't have a golden belt, but I see that nowadays the man with a golden belt rarely lacks a good reputation. It's necessary as much as possible to have the good reputation and the belt. And that's my goal when I make myself valuable by what you characterize as vile tricks and unworthy little schemes. I give my lesson, and I give it well. There's the general rule. I let people believe that I've more lessons to give than there are hours in the day. That's the idiom. Me. And the lesson? You give a good one? Him. Yes. Not bad. Quite good. My dear uncle's fundamental base has made it all a lot simpler. Before that I used to rob my pupils of money, yes, I did, that's for sure. But today I earn it, at least as much as the others. Me. And did you steal the money without any guilt? Him. Oh, none whatsoever. People say that if one robber steals from another, the devil laughs. The parents are overflowing with a fortune they've acquired. God knows how. They're from the court of financiers, or great merchants, or bankers, or business people. I was helping them pay some of it back, me and a crowd of others just like me whom they employed. In nature, all species devour each other, and in society, all the classes feed on one another. We bring justice to each other without the law getting involved. Earlier that woman Deschamps, and nowadays Guimard are the prince's vengeance on the financier. And then the fashion merchant, the jeweler, the upholsterer, the laundry woman, the swindler, the chambermaid, the cook, the saddle maker, get their revenge on Deschamps on behalf of the financier. In the middle of all this, it's only the idiot or the layabout who gets hurt, without having upset anyone, and that's just fine. So from all this, you see that these exceptions to the general conscience 
or these moral idioms about which people make such a fuss, calling them tricks of the trade, are nothing, and that, in the last analysis, the only thing one needs is to keep one's eyes open. Me. Your eyes are admirable. Him. And then there's poverty. The voice of conscience and honor are really feeble when one's guts are crying out. If I ever get rich, I'll certainly have to give the money back. And I'm firmly resolved to do so in all possible ways. Dining, gambling, wine, women. Me. But I'm afraid you'll never get rich. Him. Well, I suspect the same thing myself. Me. But if things turn out differently, what will you do? Him. I'd act like all beggars whose life has turned around. I'd be the most insolent rogue anyone has ever seen. Then I'd remember everything they made me suffer, and I'd pay them back full measure for the humiliations they put me through. I like to give orders, and that's what I do. I like it when people praise me, and praise me they will. I'll have in my service all V.A. Morial's hangers-on, and I'll speak to them the way they spoke to me. Come on, you scoundrels, amuse me, and they'll amuse me. Rip some honest people to shreds, and they'll tear them apart, if there are any still to be found. And then we'll have girls, and all address each other as friends when we're drunk, and we'll get drunk. We'll make up stories. We'll have all sorts of quirks and vices. It will be delicious. We'll prove that Voltaire had no genius, that Buffon is always strutting formally on stilts and is nothing but a bombastic windbag, that Montesquieu is nothing more than a witty fellow. We'll consign D'Alembert to his mathematics, and we'll throw down onto their bellies and backs all those little Catos like you, who despise us from envy, whose modesty is a coat covering their pride, and whose sobriety is a law arising from their own needs. And music? That's when we'll make music. Me. Given the dignified way you'd use your wealth, I see what a great pity it is that you're a pauper. You'd live in a way that would confer great honor on the human species and would be really useful to your fellow citizens and truly glorious for yourself. Him. I think you're making fun of me, Mr. Philosopher. You don't know who you're playing with. You don't suspect that at this moment I represent the most important party in the town and at court. The wealthy people in all professions either have told themselves the same things I've confided to you, or they have not. But the fact is that the life I'd live in their place is exactly the life they lead. That's just where you are too, you others. You believe that happiness is the same thing for everyone. What a strange vision. Your version assumes a certain romantic frame of mind which we don't have. A peculiar soul, a strange taste. You dress this weirdness up with the name virtue. You call it philosophy. But are virtue and philosophy made for everyone? Some are able to get them, and some can keep them. Imagine a wise and philosophical universe. You'll concede it would be devilishly sad. So long live philosophy. Long live the wisdom of Solomon. Drink good wine. Gorge oneself on choice delicacies. Roll around on beautiful women. Lie on lovely soft beds. Other than that, the rest is nothing but vanity. Me. What about defending one's country? Him. That's vanity. There's no country anymore. From one pole to the other, all I see is tyrants and slaves. Me. 
Helping one's friends? Him. Vanity. Does one really have friends? And if we had, would we have to make them ungrateful? Look closely, and you'll notice that that's almost always what you get back for services rendered. Gratitude is a burden, and every burden is put there to be shaken off. Me. Occupy a position in society and carry out its duties? Him. Vanity. What does it matter whether one has a position or not, provided that one is rich, since no one assumes a position except to get rich? Carry out its duties. Where does that lead? To jealousy, trouble, persecution. Is that the way one gets ahead? Pay court to people, by God. Pay court to them. Observe great people. Study their tastes. Take part in their fantasies. Serve their vices. Applaud their injustices. That's the secret. Me. Taking care of the education of one's children? Him. Vanity. That's the business of a tutor. Me. But if this tutor has fully absorbed your principles and neglects his duties, who's going to be punished for it? Him. My goodness, it won't be me. Maybe someday my daughter's husband or my son's wife. Me. But what if both your son and daughter hurl themselves into debauchery and vice? Him. That's their lookout. Me. What if they dishonor themselves? Him. Whatever one does, one cannot dishonor oneself if one is rich. Me. What if they ruin themselves? Him. Too bad for them. Me. I see that if you can dispense with taking care of the conduct of your wife, your children, and your servants, you could easily neglect your own affairs. Him. Excuse me, but no. It's sometimes difficult to find money, and it's prudent to get it well in advance. Me. You'll pay little attention to your wife? Him. None whatsoever, if you please. The best arrangement which one can have with one's dear better half, I think, is to do whatever one wants. In your view, wouldn't society be really amusing if everyone did what was agreeable to them? Me. Why not? The evening is never more beautiful for me than when I'm happy about my morning. Him. The same goes for me. Me. What makes fashionable people so delicate about their amusements is that they are profoundly idle. Him. Don't you believe it? They run around a lot. Me. Since they never get tired, they never relax. Him. Don't believe that. They are constantly exhausted from excess. Me. Pleasure is always a business for them, never a need. Him. So much the better. Need is always painful. Me. They wear everything out. Their souls become stupefied. Boredom grabs hold of them. Whoever took away their lives in the midst of their overwhelming abundance would be doing them a service. The fact is that they don't know anything about happiness except the part which becomes jaded most quickly. I don't disparage the pleasures of the senses. I have a palate as well, and it really likes a tasty delicacy or a delicious wine. I have a heart and eyes, and I like to see a beautiful woman.
I like to have my hands feel the firmness and the roundness of her breasts, to press her lips against mine, to soak up rapture from her looks, and to die in her arms. I'm not against a party with my friends sometimes, a debauch, even one that gets a little out of hand. But I won't conceal from you that it is infinitely more pleasurable to me to have helped someone in distress, brought some difficult business to a conclusion, given some beneficial advice, read something agreeable, taken a walk with a man or woman close to my heart, passed some instructive hours with my children, written a good page, fulfilled the duties of my position, or told the woman I love something tender and soft, so that she puts her arms around my neck. I know the sorts of actions I would give up all I own to have done. Muhammad is a sublime work of literature, but I would prefer to have rehabilitated the memory of Kala. An acquaintance of mine once took refuge in Cartagena. He was the youngster of the family in a country where custom gives all property to the eldest. There he learned that his older brother, a spoiled child, after stripping his mother and father very easily of everything they possessed, had kicked them out of their chateau, and the good old people were languishing in poverty in a small town in the provinces. So what then did this youngster do, a boy who had been treated harshly by his parents, and had gone to see if he could win his fortune far away? He sent them assistance. He quickly wound up his own affairs and returned wealthy. He brought his father and mother back into their home. He arranged for his sisters to be married. Ah, my dear Rameau, the man considered this period the happiest of his life. When he told me of it, he had tears in his eyes. And as I tell you the story, I feel my heart beating for joy, and my delight makes talking difficult. End of section 3